Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you are joining us. This is the Friday broadcast. This is part three of the message I'm entitling, Don't Give Up, Lessons from Jacob. Now, I don't know if you take notes when people speak, and and I do all the time, even if I'm listening to a podcast, and I like to jot down a few notes of what people say, and I figure uh, it'll be a blessing to somebody else in the future. And so uh, maybe you've taken some notes of the message here, and you want to use it for your small group, and I want you to know, hey, you're welcome to use it any way that you can possibly use it, because, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, truth be known, uh, what I share with you on the broadcast is something that I probably got from somebody else and uh, kind of rewrote it. But the information is not new, but it may be new to you and may be new to me. And so here's the first point, okay? And now Jacob is, his name means supplanter, right? The one who grabs uh, because he grabbed his brother's heel. He was a twin of Esau and he wanted to have that preeminence even in birth. Now you'll notice if you have children, you notice that they are born with certain traits, right? So we always have this big debate, is it nurture or is it nature, right? Are people born with certain traits or that they gain uh, certain traits because of the choices they make? And I always say it's both. Uh, There are some natural things that we're born with. um, And I think about my five children, they have natural abilities, they have natural bents, right? uh, One of my children has this natural propensity to get angry. And my other kids don't have that one, but I have one child that, man, I got to watch him and, uh, and, and he can be angry in a New York minute. And then I have other children that get, uh, uh, I've got another child that easily gets discouraged, uh, needs lots of encouragement. So uh, those are things they were kind of born with. But then the nurturing part comes in where you look at uh, the strengths and the weaknesses and you nurture the strengths and then you help them get past their weaknesses. Well, in the life of Jacob, he had this natural tendency to be a deceiver. Yeah, yeah, we're all born with a sin nature, so don't take this the wrong way. But he had that tendency uh, within him to be a deceiver. So God worked extra hard in his life to get that to turn around. So a bad start doesn't mean a bad finish. I think sometimes what we do is say, well, I was just born this way. Because I was just born this way, that's just how it's going to be. And I fell into that trap a little bit when I was coming along, and, and I struggled with math, right? And uh, my, my dad was a mathematician. He was great. He was an accountant for the Internal Revenue Service, but my mom was never much good at math. And so I used to always say, well, I take after my mom on this one, and I'm not good at math. And sometimes I would use that as an excuse uh, not to study my algebra, not to work through those uh, algebra problems. So, so just because you have a, a weakness doesn't mean you can use that as an excuse, okay? A bad start doesn't mean you're going to fail in the future. And I've discovered sometimes God will take our greatest weakness and turn it into our greatest strength. And I think the reason he does that is because he wants us not to be filled with pride. You see, when we have these natural abilities, it is so easy for us to say, hey, look what I've done, right? And I think about the early days when I was in ministry and I struggled with the public speaking. And I would go to people and they say, hey, it's no problem. And they would and they would get up and just off the cuff give an amazing message. And then I'd work on something for hours and I'd get up there and I'd lay an egg. And so those who had that natural gift, I think they don't they didn't appreciate the ability to communicate well, because it came naturally for them. But if you look at somebody who is 
who is by nature a poor communicator, but will work extra hard at it, uh, they can actually become better than one who is naturally gifted in that area. And that's true with sports. Uh, that's true with any kind of weakness. So just because you have a false start, a bad start, doesn't mean you're going to end that way. God loves to take our weaknesses. Paul says, when I am weak, he is strong. So Jacob's name actually changes, right? He's no longer identified as the deceiver, but now he's identified as Israel. Here's the second point that we learned throughout the week. Uh, we learned, secondly, that when you're looking at failure, you don't have to give in to failure uh, because much failure can be repudiated by much focus. And uh, it takes faith to believe that God can forgive and restore. And when you really fail, there's this tendency to look inside and say, oh, woe is me. I can't believe I did something so stupid and I did it again. Well, I want you to know God forgives and he forgives over and over and over again. The only sin God doesn't forgive is the one that is covered. When we cover our sins, they keep reappearing. When we confess our sins, God then covers them, never to be remembered again. So when we look at the story of Jacob, Jacob stole his brother's birthright. Well, technically he didn't, but he did, right? He was deceptive, and that's how he received that birthright. Now, Esau is culpable because he willingly sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Uh, And so he's not off the hook but neither is Jacob. So when we confess our sins, then God covers them, never to be remembered again. When we look out throughout the whole book of Genesis, we discover there's a whole lot of things that going on that are contrary to the will of God. But God's word records many times things as a matter of record, as a matter of history, not as a matter of approval of God. The fourth lesson that we learn is the fact that Forgiveness can be experienced even if you're in a dysfunctional family. You can have functional forgiveness. And we see this in the life of Jacob and the relationship that he had with his uncle Laban, who became his father-in-law. They lived in a very strange situation where Laban deceived Jacob. Now, Jacob had a history of deceiving others, and so as a result, God uses somebody who's even a better deceiver than him to teach Jacob a lesson. Have you ever noticed as your kids are coming along that you see your faults in them, but they seem to be magnified in them? It's probably not any worse than your faults, but it seems magnified because you so easily identify with it. Well, Laban deceived Jacob. Jacob learned a valuable lesson about deception, where God basically takes the shoe and puts it on the other foot and basically says, okay, Jacob, uh, you've lived your life under deception all these years. How does it feel to be majorly deceived and to work extra years to get your wife that you wanted, to get the beautiful wife of Rachel? You had to uh, worked seven years for, for Leah, and then you had to work another seven years for Rachel. Then you stayed on an additional uh, seven years to work with your uncle, who kept changing your wages and, and deceived you all these years. Uh, well, when we look at that, Paul reminds us that when we work hard, we're not doing it for the approval of human beings, right? We're doing it for the approval of God. 
And then the last point that we're going to cover today, and we kind of left off with this yesterday. When we look at favoritism, feelings and emotions, they're fleeting, so we should follow the Spirit. Now, Isaac had no reason to think that his sons would be rejected, that one of his sons would be rejected. When he had these twins, Jacob and Esau, he believed that they were both going to be involved in leading his nation as partners. And I think he thought, well, Esau is the strong one, the outdoorsy type of person, the hunter. Uh, He's going to be like the general, military leader. And uh, he's going to master the physical world, right? He's going to keep the nation's strength uh, with a strong military. But then he looked at Jacob, that Jacob would probably be the high priest, carrying on the spiritual legacy. So, so in the eyes of Isaac, he says, man, we got the perfect connection here. We have Jacob and Esau that are going to be working together. And so as we see this coming together, as the father of Leah and Rachel and the mother of the 12 tribes, Laban has blood ties to the people of the Lord. But Laban doesn't share Jacob's faith. And not surprisingly, he gives God's chosen man much grief. And we discover that Jacob, although he's every man's man in the Bible, he finds himself embodied in the nation of Israel. And as we look at his life, we discover that Jacob spent his whole life grasping for blessings, but he didn't really believe, he didn't fully believe that God was going to bring about these blessings. He always felt like he had to manipulate the situation. Now, I see this happening sometimes in my very own life, right? I believe that God will supply for all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But then I look at it and say, well, what do I need to do to manipulate the situation so that God can supply for my needs? When we look at the life of Jacob, we learn a valuable lesson because after over 20 years, being exiled to the household of his uncle, Uncle Laban, and his father-in-law twice over. God summoned Jacob to return to the land and to life that he promised him. When Laban started chasing him down, the Lord protected him. When Jacob went on his way, the angel of God met him. As we see all those angels that gathered around to protect him, we don't see that many angels anywhere else in the Bible except when the shepherds showed up outside of Bethlehem and these angels came and announced the birth of Christ. We see that Jacob, even though he had the presence of angels, the angels of God with him, he becomes filled with fear because Esau, his twin brother, his nemesis, is coming to meet him with 400 men. Well, Jacob prayed, and he, and he prayed well, and perhaps it's the best prayer in the book of Genesis. In fact, the heart of the prayer is familiar to all of us. Jacob prays in Genesis chapter 32, Oh, God, save me, I pray. And now we all know that prayer by heart, don't we? I prayed that prayer one time when I was driving down the highway, and I was driving from Charlottesville to Lynchburg, and it was a snowy night on, on Route 29. And, uh, and as the road was covered with, with snow, I was driving, and my wife and I were in her mom and dad's uh, car, and we were actually coming back from Massachusetts, and, and uh, that car began to, 
to lose control as we were going across this snow-covered road, and it began to spin around and around and around and around, and I just cried out, oh, God, save me. And wouldn't you know that car stopped right on the bank of that road, and it didn't go off the road. We didn't flip over. We didn't hit another vehicle. God stopped us right at the edge of that road, and we didn't even hit a guardrail. And uh, we were able to continue on on our journey. And I was so worried that uh, I was driving my in-laws' brand new car. And I was so worried that I had scratched it up. So we got up to a gas station where we could see. And we got out and we looked over that car up and down and all over the place. Couldn't find a scratch on the car anywhere. God, no, they protected us, but he protected that vehicle. You see, that's what Jacob cried out to the Lord. Oh, God, save me. Now, we all know that prayer by heart. It's a, a standard prayer, right? Especially maybe for pastors, because pastoring sometimes can be dangerous work. And so we are often afraid that we've got conflicts here and critics there and, and feeling like we're not performing adequately. And, and, and so sometimes we feel like our prayers are weak and defenseless. And so we cry out to the Lord. We ask Him that He will give us deliverance. Well, most of the threats that Jacob faced most of those threats were of his own making. You see, he deserved Esau's wrath. He kind of deserved Laban's conniving. You know, we don't deserve all that we fear, but that is of small comfort. But when we're afraid, trust this, God plays favorites. When God plays favorites, we all get grace. And you, my dear friend, are among his favorites. I want you to know that. You are highly favored in the eyes of God. You see, despite the earlier promises, Jacob couldn't imagine that God would actually treat him as a favored son. You know, pastors are prone to that same assumption. You know, I used to think that Jesus was pointing straight at my ministry when he said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And when you have done everything uh, you were told to do, you say, uh, we're unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So it is no wonder that I often feel afraid and, and I often afraid to face the battles. You know, I think about Job. That's the, the mindset Job had. But my dear friends, the angels of God, they are with us. I constantly remind us that the presence of God will never abandon us, never leave us. The psalmist promises us for he will command his angels. This is Psalm 91, that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. Don't you love that? God guards us in all of our ways. You see, by the end of the story of Jacob, Jacob could raise his hand up to God and give witness, even when you deserve the worst. God will not treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, he will treat you as his favorite. In his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortlund writes, Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, not reactionary, not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Oh, I want you to know, that's where he is. Esau had this army. This army was not going to be an ambush of God. This army was going to be defeated. 
God was going to protect his servant. I've got one final point that we've got to cover. I know I gave, I said I already gave you the last point, but let me give you a bonus point, okay? Uh, number six, when you think about life, one of the reasons I think that we give up is because we get tired of fighting the fight. Listen, fights are inevitable. So choose wisely what you're going to fight and how you're going to fight. We learn in Genesis chapter 32 that Jacob wrestles with God. I just want to read this text to you, okay? And let the text be absorbed as you listen to what happens as Jacob wrestles with God. Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabboth. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with a man. The man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man answered, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Penel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Can I encourage you? Oh, don't grow weary doing well, doing good. You see, when the time is right, you will reap what you have sown. When I think about the beauty of Christ, and I think about what Christ can and will do for us, I'm reminded of the communion and of the Passover that the Israelites would celebrate. You know, there's seven major Jewish holidays. All of them have two primary purposes. And I think when we look at the Bible, all of God's Word has two primary purposes. One is to remember what God has done. So don't forget that God has been involved in the lives of humanity from the day that we were created. The second is that Jewish holidays and feasts and God's Word is given to us as a shadow of something that is to come. The Passover is a major Jewish festival that happens the springtime of the year, and it commemorates the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. It lasts seven or eight days, and it starts from the 15th day of Nisan. And the whole purpose of this is a reminder. One of the fascinating aspects of the Passover meal is that as you get to the table, you discover there are four cups on the table. Each of the four cups of the Passover stands for one of the four I wills in Exodus chapter 6. 
The first one is the, I will bring you out of the burdens of the Egyptians. That is called the cup of the sanctification. Reminding the Israelites that they were in bondage those many years so that God could make them a holy people. And once they learned to be holy, he was going to bring them out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. God promised that he would deliver them. The second cup was a cup not of sanctification, but a cup of judgment. That second cup represented the fact that God was going to rescue them from their bondage, rescue them from the judgment, not only make them holy, but rescue them from bondage. They were to be delivered from judgment. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. And that cup symbolizes the fact that God was going to redeem them with his outstretched arm. He was going to redeem his people. The nation of Israel today is still the apple of God's eye. It's still God's chosen people. God so wants to bring redemption to his people. With an outstretched arm, he is bringing redemption to them. And there is a fourth cup. That is called the cup of praise. And that fourth cup represents the I will statement of, I will take you as my people. You see, when we look at the four questions of the Passover, they are loosely connected with the four cups. The question is, why is this night different from any other night? Well, this is going to be the night that God's judgment was going to fall, but God was going to deliver his people. The second question is, why on this night do we only eat matzah, which is a reminder to them that on that particular night of Passover, that they were going to be delivered, and God was going to deliver them in a supernatural way. They were going to leave in such haste to get out from under that judgment that they didn't have time to bake the bread. They didn't have time to put the yeast into the dough. They grabbed the dough without yeast, and they escaped quickly. So the matzah was a reminder that God was going to deliver them from sin. You see, yeast in the Bible always is a reference of sin. Another question they would ask on Passover night is, why on this night do we eat bitter herbs? That was a reminder of the fact that God was going to deliver them from the bitter and the harsh judgment of being enslaved. That was a reminder on that night to eat the bitter herbs of slavery. Another question they would ask is, why on this night do we dip twice? And why on this night do we recline at this meal? That was a reminder of the fact that they were going to find their rest and their peace in deliverance, in the Messiah. Now, if you're a savvy listener, and I'm sure that you are, you probably notice that there are actually five questions. I guess the first one is best understood as a header. Why is this night different from all other nights? And frankly, that's my favorite question. Well, the bottom line about the other four, I know the answers to number one, and, and I don't care about two, three, four, and five. I understand that the good news is that we're not stuck on those other questions. We have been set free. And that's why we don't give up. When you look at the world, you will get distressed. If you look within, you'll get depressed. But if you look up, 
you will be impressed. You'll be filled with new vigor and new life. You see, God can set us free. When I think about those four questions, I think about the fact that God sets us free. This Passover is different because we live in a different world. It is one in which the economy and many people are struggling and they're having difficult times, but God is able to come through. He always has, He always will. This night was different because it reminds us of the importance of not letting people live in bondage. We have been commissioned to help set people free. Jesus gave a command and a commission. The commission is to go out and make disciples of every tribe, every nation, every ethnic group. The Great Commission is a commission that is given to all believers. The Great Command is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Keep on keeping on in these two great exhortations given to us by Christ himself. You will discover your life will have that drive and that motivation, and you won't give up. You will hang in there even when times get tough. Well, I hope that you have an amazing weekend. I hope that you come and worship with us this Sunday at 9 o'clock or 1045 at Hickory Ridge Community Church. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.